follow along as I read. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asteros from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, Lord, you, the light of the world, have shown in our hearts that, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us, that you, the almighty God, the living God, the all-powerful God, have made yourself known. And God, we thank you that, that we can know you and that you've given us, Lord, your word that speaks to us, that reveals, Lord, not just stories, but your heart for your people. And Lord, I pray today that that heart would be communicated loud and clear today and that we would find ourselves as your people just in that place of saying, Lord, we want all of you, and we want you to have all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When we come to the book of 1 Samuel, we find the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, is really in a mess spiritually. It's still the time of the judges where we have read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the people of Israel are not right with God. The priesthood is a mess. The chief priest is a guy by the name of Eli. His assistant priests are his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In today's vernacular, Eli is the lead pastor and of the church, and his sons are the assistants. And this is what was going on. His sons were stealing from the offering, and they were having sex with the women in the church. That's how messed up this was. This is how bad things were. If you were here on Wednesday night, Pastor Jason shared a story about when he was pastoring in in, uh, the church in Texas, and he, he heard about one of his assistant pastors, this young guy who was sleeping with multiple women in the church. And he talked about just how mad it made him. In fact, one of his assistants had to hold him back because it was he was so just mad at this guy. Now, he didn't tell you what I told him that he should do when he called me. Is I said, you ought to take a couple of the biggest deacons in your church and take that guy out back and beat the tar out of him, you know? That's what I said that I thought that he should do to that guy. And some of you might be thinking, Guy Pastor Rob, that's really mean. Maybe so. But that's how serious I am about being somebody's pastor. You see? You are precious to God. Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, this is how he describes the church. He says that you're the church that God, you're God's church, and you're the group of people that he purchased with his blood. You're precious to God because Jesus purchased you. He paid the price for you with his own blood. And in my opinion, anybody that uses his spiritual position in order to take advantage of people or manipulate people should automatically, that's just grounds for resignation. They should be asked right then and there, whenever that happens, to just resign immediately. Now, I'll be the first to admit that 
you know, myself, Jason, I mean, those who share, I mean, we, we, we'll share things sometimes that, that maybe can come across the wrong way, but I want you to know, in our heart, man, we, we love you guys because you're precious to, to the Lord. Why am I so passionate about this? Well, because Jesus was. You see, that's what drove Jesus to go into the temple, and we see him like we never have before. I mean, this isn't Jesus with the little children on his lap. This is Jesus with a whip in hand. And it happens twice, once in the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry, that he goes into the temple, whip in hand. He's cracking the whip. He's turning over tables. We're seeing this side of Jesus. I mean, it's Rambo Jesus, okay? We're seeing this side of Jesus that we never see. Why? Because the religious leaders in Israel were taking advantage of God's people. They were manipulating God's people. They were ripping off God's people. They were using their spiritual position to rip off and steal and take advantage of the people of God. And it just incensed Jesus. His heart was filled with a righteous indignation. You see, that's why it doesn't surprise me. When we read, as we will this week, and we'll see that God kills Hophni and Phinehas. He basically comes and says, look, you guys, you're done. And he kills them. Because you see, you are precious to God. So it's serious stuff. Here's the bright side. In the midst of all of this evil, God raises up a man, really a young boy by the name of Samuel. We met him last week. And Samuel is going to be used by God to get Israel back on track. And we'll see this Wednesday how the children of Israel go to war at this place called Ebenezer. In chapter 4, they prepare for battle. They go out into war against the Philistines. They lose the battle. In the midst of the battle, the Ark of the Covenant, that which represents the presence of God in Israel, gets captured by the Philistines. And there's some crazy comical stuff that happens to the Philistines. you got to come out Wednesday night to, to hear this. But some crazy stuff happens to them to finally, they're at the point where they're saying, let's get rid of this ark. And so it ends up in this place called Kirjath-Jerim, the home of some Levites. And it's there for 20 years. And the 20 years that it is there, I mean, God just blesses this family. Well, we come to chapter 7 after many, many years of Israel not being right with God, and now the nation is gathered together to Samuel at a place called Mizpah, and they're ready to get serious about God again. And there's this 20-year gap between verses 1 and 2 and then verse 3, and I want to read verse 3 again. Follow along with me. It says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all of your hearts and then put away the foreign gods and the asteros from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Verse four. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asteros and served the Lord only. Verse three gives us four simple steps to revival. And whether we're talking about revival in an individual heart, your heart today, or whether we're talking about revival taking place in a church, or whether we're talking about revival taking place in a community or a nation, these are four simple steps that we see here to getting right with God and seeing him bless our lives radically. 
If you're taking notes, number one, Samuel says, return with all of your hearts. He says, if you return with all of your hearts, return to the Lord. You see, that's what true repentance is really about. Returning to God with all of your hearts. The word repent, it means to change. You know, it's interesting, uh, a Sunday school, third grade Sunday school teacher was asking her students, what does the word repent mean? And a little boy said, it means that you're sorry. And a little girl spoke up and said, no, I think it means that you're sorry and you quit doing what you were doing. You quit doing it. Well, the little girl had the better understanding of the word. In fact, if we were to go down to Vista Jail and if we had a chance to talk to the inmates there, I have no doubt in talking to the inmates there that most of them would say that they were sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. But after some further interview, I think that what we would find out is a lot of them, that they're sorry that they got caught. They're not sorry about what they did for their crime, but they're sorry that they got caught. The word repent, it means to change. It starts with a change of mind where you realize that what you were doing or what you were thinking or that attitude that you have, that it was wrong. And that change of mind turns into a change of direction. It's when you're running in this direction and you're going this way, running away from the Lord or away from his will, and you do a 180 and you start running in this direction back towards him. That's what repentance is. And this is what God promises to those who repent. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, he says, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And then he says this, and I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your bondage. God promises, hey, if you seek after me with all of your heart, you're gonna find me. I'll be found by you and I'm going to deliver you. It starts with the heart. You see, heart is a relationship word. You know, our heart, when we're falling in love, we feel it, you know, in our heart. Heart, it's a love, it's about a heart. It's about the heart thing. It's why Valentine's a symbol. It's a, it's a heart because it's, relationships revolve around the heart. And the idea here is it's coming to that place when your personal relationship with God means more to you than anything else in your life. You see, there's a common problem today, and that's a divided heart. It's where you can have a heart for God, but you also have a heart for all this other stuff. You have a heart for all these other things. And these other things, they distract you. They can be sinful things. They can be things that are against the Lord. Or they can be things that aren't sinful, but maybe they're just, they're not good for you. They can even be things that are good. Remember when Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? He said this about this church. Listen while I read to you his description. He says, I know your works and your labor and your patience. In other words, they were an active church. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. They were a pure church. And that you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not. And have found them to be liars. They were a church that was into sound doctrine. And you have persevered and have patience. And have labored for my namesake. And have not become weary. They were a faithful church. 
And we read that description and we say, man, that sounds like a great church. Where is it? I want to go there, you know. But then Jesus wrote, he said, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. And the idea there is, is that they had all this activity, they had all the right beliefs, they had all this you know, stuff that was going on, but it was a lot of motion with no devotion. It was a lot of motion, a lot of activity, but the heart was severely lacking. And so Jesus came and said, hey, here's what you need to do. Remember where you have fallen, repent and return and do the first works again. And maybe that's a description of your heart today that you realize, man, my heart is so divided and, you know, I love the Lord, but I also, I'm I'm caught up in all this other stuff and maybe it's some good things. Today you need to take and make a decision to stop and return and to go back to that place in your life when when you and your relationship with Jesus was the most important thing to you above everything else. So the first thing he says, return with all of your heart. Secondly, he says, remove. Put away the foreign gods. You see, the Israelites had become so corrupted by the influences around them that they had taken up the practice of idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping gods, uh, uh, idols made of stone. And idols made of wood. And it's interesting when you consider the, the idols that the, 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 the pagans made. That the, the pagans make their gods. Their gods don't make them. The pagans carry their gods. Their gods don't carry them. In fact, we'll see this week on Wednesday night in chapter 5. The Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their god Dagon. And they set it right before the, the, uh, the, the idol Dagon, the fish god. And they come in the next day, and Dagon is off of his perch, and he's like face down before the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, oh, that's weird. And so they come, and they pick their god up, and they put him back on his perch. Now think about that, Okay. Think about that picture. Oh, look at our God. We better pick him back up, you know, and put him on his thing. And, and the next day they come back and he's, he's fallen over again. And this time his head's cut off and his, his hands are cut off. And, and they go, uh, this temple can't handle two gods. We better get rid of one. Let's get rid of the ark, you know. We'll keep our God that needs our help. <laughs> it's crazy. The pagans make their gods. Their gods don't make them. The pagans carry their gods. Their gods don't carry them. The the pagans protect their gods. Their gods don't protect them. The pagans sacrifice to their gods. Their gods do not sacrifice for them. But our God, on the other hand, our God has made us, he carries us, and he has sacrificed himself for us. But the Israelites abandoned that God. The God who had delivered them from Egypt... The God who parted the Red Sea, the God who parted the Jordan River, the the God who led them to possess the land of Canaan that they're in now, this God who had done so much for them, they abandoned him for gods of, of wood and gods of stone. And the gods that they were worshiping in that day and age, they were worshiping the sex goddess Astaroth. So we could say they were into pornography. They worship Molech, the god of pleasure. They worship Baal, the god of intellectualism. They, re- they worship Mammon, the god of power and possessions. You know what's interesting about that? 
In our culture, in our country, those gods are still being worshipped, aren't they? Yeah, we see people today that they worship the goddess of sex. They worship pornography. That pornography, according to a great ministry called Covenant Eyes, it shared these stats. 68% of men and 18% of women visit porn sites at least once a week. It's a $20 billion a year industry that is destroying lives and destroying homes. We also worship the God of intellectualism. Our schools, in the name of science, have pushed God out of the classroom. And we've become pursuers of knowledge, but we ignore the facts of intelligent design, that the world around us, that the design speaks of a designer, the creation speaks of a a creator, but we ignore that. And we also worship the gods of pleasure. I mean, think about it. Our whole culture is geared around entertainment. Everybody's living for the weekend. Remember that song? We're living for the weekend. We're living for the next thrill. We're living to, you know, I can't wait to go to that amusement park or, you know, that place on vacation. Our whole world is geared around that mentality. We also worship the God of power and possessions. Money and materialism drive our culture until, those are the gods that people worship until they get into trouble. I've never heard a person in a jam, crying out to materialism. Oh, American Express, save me. I've never heard somebody, you know, in a jam crying out to education. Oh, master's degree, save me. I've never heard somebody in a jam crying out to pleasure. Oh, playboy, save me. No, they cry out to the living God. God, help. Because they realize Those gods don't satisfy. Application for us. Hey, is there anything today that has your heart? Is there anything in your life right now that has you divided? Maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. But it's something that you have just, you've put it above your relationship with God. Can I encourage you? Return to the Lord with all of your heart today. Put away the foreign gods. Put Jesus back in that rightful place of the center of your life, of being the the God that your life revolves around. So number two, remove the foreign gods. Number three, prepare your heart to meet with God. That's what he tells them. Prepare your heart. You know, we prepare our hearts for everything that is important to us, don't we? Most of you here, especially you ladies, you prepared yourself for your wedding day. I've done enough weddings to know that most brides and a lot of the grooms, they prepare themselves for the day that they're going to get married. They go on a diet, they start working out, you know, they start doing stuff to get ready for that day. We prepare ourselves for job interviews. You know, we get up, we shave, we shower, we make our hair nice, we put on a nice suit or a dress. If we're a, a lady, we prepare ourselves for things that are important. You students, you prepare yourself for a final exam. You prepare yourself for the first time you're going to meet your girlfriend's parents. You think about what you're going to say when, you know, 
What's your intentions towards my daughter? Uh, my intentions are pure, sir. You know, they are pure, you know, absolutely. You prepare yourself. You think it through. We prepare ourselves for the things that are important to us. But listen, listen. Do we prepare ourselves to meet with God? Do we? See, I think sometimes we take meeting with him a little too casually. Paul Harvey tells a story about an attractive airline flight attendant who was being hounded by two flirts on the plane. And these guys, they, they were aggressive. And the whole flight, one of them was sitting in the back of the plane, the other was sitting in the front of the plane, and they both were just, you know, making passes at her the whole flight. And the one guy in the back, he'd had a little bit too much to drink, and he got really bold. As she was walking by, he handed her a piece of paper and a key. And the piece of paper had his address on it, and the key, it said, was to his apartment. And he said to her, see you tonight. Well, she took the key, and she took the paper. And she walked to the front of the plane, and she handed it to the other guy. <laughs> and she winked at him and said, don't be late. <laughs> now, I'm sure there were two really upset dudes, you know, that showed up at that apartment that night. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Really nothing. <laughs> except, except this, okay? Jesus said this, when two or more are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. So I, I know that there's at least two of us here gathered in his name. I know myself and Tom, we're, we're gathered here in, in his name. I'm sure a lot of you are as well. But here's something, listen, listen. Here's something I want you to catch. There's something different about him being in our midst and him manifesting his presence. It's different. When he manifests his presence among us, I mean, that's radical. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, the word glory, talking about the glory of God, it's the, the Hebrew word kabod, not kebab like barbecue, but kabod. And it's a word that literally means weightiness, heaviness, a thickness, in a good way where you just sense, man, God's presence is here and it's thick. And we've had those times, haven't we? Right here in this room where we have sensed God's presence among us. And it's thick. And you can sense that he is working. Why isn't it that way all the time? Well, I personally think that the way that we approach God has something to do with it. The way that we prepare our hearts to meet with him has something to do with it. In fact, I venture to say that most, if not all of you women going to the women's retreat this week, you're going to experience the kabod. It's going to happen. You're going to meet up there at Marietta when you're in that sanctuary and you're having worship. God is going to just fall. Why is that? Well, because you've been preparing yourself for the retreat. You've been thinking about it. You've been praying about it. You've invested. You put some money down to go to the retreat and you're going to be going with an expectation that, man, God's going to work. 
But a lot of times, when we come into this setting on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, we, we don't prepare ourselves. We don't have that same type of, of expectation. And, and if you're visiting with us today, or you're you know, new, or you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to give you permission right now to just kind of tune out for a second, okay? You can just kind of tune out so I can talk to the family. Because you see, here's the thing, church. When we come here to worship God, we need to realize that worship is not about us. It's about him. It's about who he is. And God is worthy of all of our praise. We can worship. He deserves all that we would give to him for all that he has done for us. He has saved us. And he's done so much more. He deserves our praise. In Precious Church, we should prepare our hearts to meet with him like we are meeting with the most important person in the entire world. But here's what we often do. We don't do that. And we get distracted. We get focused on things that we shouldn't get, to fo- get focused on. I'll never forget. I'm out in the lobby way one morning. It's been a while. And a couple comes in and the, the gal says to me, and she's not here. I know that for a fact today. She's not here. So I'm not going to embarrass her unless she listens to this tape. But she says, hey, who's doing worship today? And I said who it was. And she goes, oh, bummer. <laughs> and I thought, how sad. You know, sorry, Trevor. But uh, no, it wasn't Trevor. <laughs> but I thought, how sad, you know. When it, when it, when it comes, you know, to that. Sometimes, you know, we, we come in and, and we get all distracted and hung up about, you know, some of you think the music's too loud and others of us think it's not loud enough. And so we get all, you know, we're focused on that. For those of you who think it's too loud, just, just a little commercial here, tidbit, that section right over there and anywhere in front of these poles are the loudest places in the room, okay? The quietest places in the room are right back there that far area there, and anywhere in the back row. So if you don't like it loud, sit over there. Half the church is over there next week. Okay. <laughs> if you like it loud, move over to this side, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But, but listen, I mean this just in sincere love for you guys. When we come together, worship, it's about him. It's about who he is. And I think if more of us genuinely took the time before we even come here to prepare our hearts to meet with him, the less we're going to be concerned about all that other peripheral stuff. It's going to be like, man, God, you are amazing. And I'm so glad that I can come together with my church family, with some awesome musicians, and, and just praise your name. And I think if more of us came here with that focus and attitude, he would manifest his presence more often. And I know this, you'd get more out of the message. We'd see more people get saved. Why do I say that? Well, because I used to see this all the time when I was a high school pastor. We'd meet right on the other side of that room on Wednesday nights. 
And we had a lot of kids come in from all the different high schools. And a lot of them, you know, they, they weren't saved. Kids bringing their friends or telling their friends about it, and they would show up. And this happened, like, all the time. The end of a message, I would give an invitation, and kids would give their life to the Lord. And so I'd sit down with them afterwards, and I would say, you know, so what led you tonight to, to respond and to give your life to Christ? And I heard this so many times. They'd say, well, it really wasn't anything that you said which is a great thing to tell a preacher, you know? And I say, well, what was it then? And they say, well, I came here and I saw these kids that I go to school with. And I watched them. As you were doing that singing thing that you call worship, and they're like just standing up, arms raised, singing at the top of their lungs, and it just hit me that they have something that I don't have and I want it. I want it. I didn't need to say a thing. I could have got up after worship and said, hey, who wants to give their life to Christ? And they would have just done it right then and there. Because the thing that they had been watching in that person that they went to school with, that they thought something different about them, it clicked when they saw him worshiping. And God was manifesting his presence. And God has done that here. I just would love to see him do that more often. Amen? Amen. So for those of you, church family, can we make a pact? Can we just agree together today, myself included, that, that we will take serious this idea, this privilege that we have to seek the Lord together and start making some more effort to prepare our hearts beforehand to seek him. Are you with me on this? Okay. All right. For all those of you who tuned out, you can come back now, okay? Um, So here's the deal. Four simple steps to revival. Number one, return with all of your heart. Number two, remove the foreign gods. Number three, prepare your heart to seek the Lord. And that's not just here. That's also at home. That's realizing in the morning when I get up that I'm having the opportunity to spend time with the living and true one and only God. Number four. Serve the Lord only. That's what he says. Serve the Lord only. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you should sign up to teach in Sunday school? Maybe. Does that mean that that you should volunteer to help out in the parking lot? Maybe. Does that mean that you should serve somewhere here in the fellowship? Maybe. But that's not the only thing that it means. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul the Apostle says, whatever you do, do it for God's glory, okay? It's the realization that whatever I'm doing in my life, whatever I, I'm doing, whatever I'm approaching, to do it for God's glory. Colossians 3, verse 17 says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. It's the realization, church, that Your life is about bringing glory to God. It's the realization, it's the understanding that you don't exist for yourself and God doesn't exist for you, but you exist for God. And God is glorified when you serve him. God is glorified when you do what you are doing for his glory. And for that reason, I believe that we who are believers, we should be the hardest workers in our companies. 
I didn't say the, the, the most talented or maybe even not the best, but we should be the hardest working. We should be the most reliable. We should be those who are the most honest and who have the most integrity. Why? Because we're working for God. It's the realization that your place of employment is your mission field. It's your sphere of influence. It's the place where you get to shine for him. When you look at it that way, it changes your whole perspective. A mom had this plaque above the sink in her kitchen. Divine service happens here three times a day. I like that. Three times a day she was making meals. But in her mind, divine service has happened here three times a day. Because let's be real, ladies. If your kids, and I love my kids, but if your kids are anything like My kids, they don't say thank you near enough to you, Mom. If you guys are anything like this husband, you don't tell your wife enough that you appreciate that meal or or what she did. So ladies, the point is, is that you're living with sinners. (laughs) So they're not going to give you the appreciation and stuff that you want or need, or deserve. So do it for God. Divine service done here three times a day. You see, that changes the, the way you approach everything. You're not working for the paycheck. You're not working for the, the, to impress the boss. You're not working to impress the spouse. You're not working for the, the pat on the back. No, you're saying, look, whatever I'm doing, I'm gonna do it to serve the Lord. You make these four simple steps the focus of your life and things are going to get radical really, really fast. It's revival. It's how it starts. Now before we go, I want to tell you what happened to Israel. We'll see this in more detail on Wednesday night. But here's what happened. The people of Israel are gathered at Mizpah. Revival is breaking out, and the Philistines get wind of it, and they think, man, Israel, look at all of them. They're preparing for war, so the Philistines get their troops together to go into battle, kind of a preemptive strike. And someone comes to the people of Israel and says, man, the Philistines heard what's going on here, and they're going to attack. Listen, church, that's always the reaction of the enemy. You start getting right with God, You start getting excited about the Lord and the enemy perks up. You see, the common fallacy is this. If I'm seeking the Lord, I'll escape trials. And if I'm going through trials, that must mean that I'm doing something wrong. Actually, the opposite is is oftentimes true. That if you are in the midst of a trial, it could mean, it means often that you're doing something right. You see, If you are a lukewarm Christian, if you're one who wants to settle for the status quo, if you want to live a mediocre Christian life, Satan's not going to bother you too much because he's got you right where he wants you. He realizes he may not be able to affect your life as far as salvation goes, but he knows you're not affecting anybody else. So he's like, let him be. But the minute 
The minute a believer gets excited about, you know, reaching out to his friends or his family or his co-workers, the minute a church gets excited about reaching their community for Jesus, the enemy perks up and goes, we got a live one here. Attack! Because he wants to quench that. But the Bible tells us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Well, watch what happens here to Israel. It's awesome. Israel has prepared their hearts to seek the Lord. There's confession and fasting and prayer that is going on. We pick it up in verse 9. It says, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Bethkar means house of the lamb, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizbah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Notice how this battle starts. It begins with the prophet Samuel sacrificing a lamb. And it ends at the house of the lamb. Victory always starts. It always starts with the lamb that was sacrificed. That's where victory starts. Victory for you and I started the day that Jesus hung on the cross. And there as he hung on that cross, he was paying the price for our sins. But he was also doing a work in the spiritual realm that was incredible. He was defeating sin and defeating death and defeating the enemy. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, that who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. And we picture Jesus on that cross hanging there naked, little loincloth around him. He's been beaten so bad that Isaiah says, you can't even tell that it's a man hanging there. He's been so disfigured as he hangs upon that cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now when we hear that word, you know, endure, we think of like, oh, just barely pressing through. I'm enduring my job. I'm enduring my mother-in-law, you know. All of you just laughed, just gave yourself away. <laughs> I'm enduring this, like I'm just trying to get through the day. That's not what that word means. The word in the Greek there, uh, he endured, is hupomeneo in the Greek, and it means to conquer. See, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He's there and he looks weak physically, but in the spiritual realm, he is working overtime. The enemy is going down. Death is being defeated. Sin is being conquered. That's what Jesus did for us at Calvary. The victory began with the lamb that was slain for you and I. Jesus won the war so that you and I could win the battles. 
And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, after the victory, Samuel erects this stone, this monument, calls it Ebenezer to remind them of when they lost the battle and then when God was faithful to help them. Ebenezer means the stone of help. It's the idea in that hymn that we say, I'm going to sing, I'm going to raise my Ebenezer, that remembrance of God's help and God's faithfulness in our lives. Memorials are great things to have. Things that remind us of God's faithfulness. I've shared with you before about how I like to journal. And it reminds me of God's faithfulness, the things that he has done in my life. On my desk sits a little plaque with this tennis ball. On this tennis ball, it says, Kurt Condon, make every day count. Six years ago, this guy, Kurt, was my friend. He was a tennis pro, went to church here, and he was a tennis pro at El Camino Country Club. And I discipled Kurt. We would meet once a week in the mornings and hit tennis balls together, and it was great hitting balls with Kurt because no matter where I hit it, he always hit it right back to me, you know? I'd hit it all over the place, and he would just hit it right back to me. It's like, okay, let's work on your backhand. And he'd hit 30, just perfect, right here, you know. Okay, now the forehand, just, you know, it was awesome. It was so much fun. And then after we would hit balls for an hour, we would sit down, and we were reading a book together. We got cancer, and he went home to be with the Lord. And they handed these out at his memorial. And this has sat on my desk for years and years and years, and I look at it a lot. Make every day count. That was kind of his thing, his saying. And I knew what he meant. Make every day count for Jesus. Make it count for the Lord. For me, it's a great Ebenezer. It's a great memorial. It's a great reminder. Hey, going to make this day count for the Lord. These memorials, I encourage you to have them. Some things in your life that remind you of God's faithfulness in your life. Today, we're going to close our service with a great memorial communion. And it reminds us today, we're going to be reminded of the fact that 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem, Jesus hung there and paid the price for our sins so that we could know God, so that we could live in relationship with him, so that we could be his people, so that we could be saved from spending an eternity in hell. And today, those elements speak to us, remind us of that. But it also reminds us of his incredible love. It reminds us of the victory that Jesus won so that now you and I, we can be victorious even now as we follow him. Because he didn't just die on the cross, he rose again, right? And he lives. And he lives in you and he lives in me and he wants to live not just in us but through us to the world around us. And as we partake of communion today, we're going to be reminded, I think the Holy Spirit is going to be reminding us of all of that. Now, before we do this, though, I have to just say this. Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, don't partake of communion in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, to partake of communion in an unworthy manner means really two things. One, if you're not a Christian here today, 
and you haven't given your heart to the Lord, and you know he died on the cross for your sins, but you're saying, I'm not ready to follow him yet, to partake of those two elements, the bread and the cup that speaks of his body being broken and his blood being shed, to partake of that is say, oh, I know you did this for me, but I'm not really ready to follow you. That's to partake in an unworthy manner. And I want to encourage you. Paul said, don't do that. People, they get sick and some have even died. Serious thing. But it also means if you are a Christian here today, but you're living in sin, you're living in rebellion, you're doing your own thing. You know you're not right with God. And you're not ready today to put away the foreign gods. You're not ready today to follow him with all of your heart. Paul says, don't partake. And I want to encourage you, don't. Just let it go by when the tray gets passed. But there's another option. Turn your heart to Jesus today. And just say, you know, I'm done. Lord, I realize it's about you. It's not about me. And I'm done with living for myself. I want to live for you. Lord, here's my heart. And just tell him that. And he'll meet you today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. We thank you, Jesus, that you won the war so that we can win the battles. We thank you, Lord, that on that cross, you endured. Hupomeneo, you conquered sin and death the very things that have held us in bondage. Thank you, Jesus, for the victory that we have in you. That our victory began with the lamb that was slain. And it ends with us in your house, gathered together with you. And Lord, we look forward to that day. So meet us here now, Lord, in this moment. As we remember your victory for us, we do so, Lord, with great gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.